This morning, uh, I want us to kind of keep wrapping our minds around what the book of Jonah is about. As I was getting ready for uh, some work that I'm doing in Ecuador in the coming weeks, I have an opportunity to go down and teach the missionaries there. And uh, Gary, who's the team leader there, asked me uh, about doing a particular theme. And I said, no, I want to do Jonah with them. And Gary said, well, we're all missionaries. Why would we need anybody to teach us about the book of Jonah? I said, the book of Jonah is not about missions. The book of Jonah is about attitudes. Attitudes affect missions. But it is about a fundamental attitude that can easily be grown in a conservative religious environment. And that's what happened to Jonah. And the way that his attitude was developed was not in one galvanizing moment, but in years and years of a climate of superiority that was developed inside of a fervently, at times, religious community. And so when we study Jonah, we study the product that could come out of our church. We study the very kind of person that can be raised up in the midst of conservative, Bible-believing, God-knowing people. It wasn't that Jonah didn't know God. It was that he didn't like what he knew about God. Because what he knew about God crowded in to his patriotism, his nationalism, his feelings of superiority. And it crowded in in such a way that Jonah would rather a large number of people, the numbers given in the book of Jonah, at the very end, 120,000 at least, he would rather they perish and repent. And that attitude had grown in Jonah in such a powerful way, coexisting in his mind with the Word of God. Jonah's not ignorant of what God is like. He's going to chastise God for being like God. When we get into chapter 4 next week, we're going to hear Jonah, he gets on to God, he chastises him for being like God. And so when we think of the book of Jonah, we wrap our minds around it. It's not a book about missions. Missions flows from it. It's a book about attitudes that prevent missions from being at the forefront of what God's people do. When Jesus gave us His great commission, when He gave us His great commandment, when He laid out His strategy in Acts 1.8, each one of those supposed a particular 
attitude of humility. A particular thankfulness of conversion. A particular disposition of obedient love. That's why when Jesus speaks to His disciples about their obedience, He always contextualizes it with this one word, love. He says, if you love Me, you will keep My commands. And so there's this picture that we get that when Jesus sends His disciples out, He sends them out with the opposite attitude of Jonah. He sends them the same way that Jonah was sent, but the disciples don't get on a boat and flee. And so we read about Jonah and we wrap our minds around the fact that the whole book is a book about attitudes. So, rolling into that, let me share with you the missional mindset on your outline. To seek to know God. And here's where Jonah got stuck. He, he knew God. He could quote the character of God to God. In fact, that's what he does in chapter 4. He quotes the very revelation of God when God spoke to Moses and described his character to Moses on the great mountain meeting when God revealed himself to Israel. Jonah quotes that. He knows But his knowledge of God has not been a transformative relationship in which he begins to grow in God's likeness. In fact, Jonah is resistant to conformity to the likeness of God while living in the middle of a religious community and occupying a position of ministry. Now think that through. Jonah is one of the top ministers. He is a prophet of God. He's in a community that's fervently religious, sometimes way askewed. But in the middle of that, an attitude is fostered in him, and he is comfortable. Listen, he is comfortable with hatred. He's cool with it. He can hate in such a way and still function as a minister. He can detest in such a way and yet carry out tasks. And so what we're stuck with with Jonah is the confrontation in every one of us that there can coexist inside our mind a rote knowledge of what God's nature is and an unwillingness to let Him conform us to His nature. That's why Paul wrote Romans 12, 1. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, the premise of your change is God's mercy towards you. That you present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is a, a spiritual function or service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's this move of conformity. Ephesians tells us that we're putting off the old self and putting on the new self, which in the likeness of God is holy. And so what Jonah is about is it about a mind that is segregated. 
into components. On one side is rote religious knowledge memorized that can be quoted of what God is like and what He has done in history. In another place exists a hatred, a deep abiding hatred for a group of people so deep that he would rather them perish than repent. And then in another little place is an arrogance that believes that that contradiction is okay. So when we study Jonah, we're studying a man whose mind is broken kind of into three pieces. A rote knowledge of God, a deep abiding hatred of people, and an arrogance that says, I'm good to go with both of these things existing up here and here at the same time. And so what God has to do is bring him through a series of things that these things may come to light and boil up to the surface. We've already seen part of that with Jonah running away. And so today we're getting to the place where we're going to see some surprises. So this is where Jonah messed up. He didn't go beyond number the first part here. To seek to know God, then to grow in his likeness. That's called becoming Christ-like. And then as a result to show others what he is like. You see, what Jonah didn't want to do is for the Ninevites to know what God was like. He did not want them to know that. He did not want them to know that God is forgiving and merciful and patient and long-suffering. He did not want them to know. And so, all this is going on in Jonah's mind. It's going on in his heart. So the missional mindset gets all three of these right. The book is about three kinds of people. It's about self-righteous, arrogant people who have that mindset that Jonah has. It's about rebels who are just wicked. They just they disregard what God has to say and who He is and they just live it out blatantly in a very wicked form and Nineveh characterized that. The greatness of the city and the nation of Nineveh was because the Assyrians were just wicked warriors. There's pictures of uh, in, in ancient reliefs that we have that come from the Assyrian kingdoms. And there's these great big pictures that are etched into walls of, of men and women's bodies on stakes, just hanging with the stake impaling them. And they're just hanging there, and they're being shown to other people to subjugate those people to say, this is what we're about to do to you. There's pictures in the Assyrian reliefs where they actually take these hooks and put them up into people's sinuses and drag their bodies. The Assyrians got an A-plus in wickedness. And when God describes their wickedness in chapter 1, it says that their wickedness has come up before me. It's kind of like somebody started throwing bodies of the Assyrian uh, captors and, and, and ones they killed in a pile, and finally it got so high that God's just looking at the top of the pile. And He says, their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah's like, yeah, why don't you do something about it? And God is, I'm going to. I want to save them. 
I want to save them. And so that's what it's the, the rebel heart, and then so that's where we see the redeemer's heart. The pursuing heart. He's pursuing Jonah and his messed up thinking. He's pursuing the Assyrians and their messed up living. He's, he's pursuing all of these because God loves to save. He gets glory by saving sinners. And the more wretched they are, the more to the praise, the glory of His grace, of how gracious He is. And so that's what's happening in this wonderful short book. You can read the book in about nine minutes. It's just fantastic. So here are six surprises. Let's kick it off. The surprising call of God to Jonah in spite of his rebellion, failure, and lingering attitude. You would expect that after the whale vomits Jonah out, that God would come up to him and say, Dude, you're out. You are the most misfit prophet and least likely person to get this job done. I'm nixing you. You're fired. Go home! But the whale vomits Jonah out onto the shore. Jonah comes staggering out. And God says, Alright, go to Nineveh. And so the surprising call of God is that in the midst of the fact that he was a rebel, in the the midst of the fact that he was this person who, who just failed, he was an utter failure. Listen, there, there, there are some folks here today, you have blown it. You've blown it. You just, you could start, you could start listing all the blown it's. And you're done with yourself. And you think God's done with you. I want to share with you that in spite of your failure, in spite of your own personal rebellion against God, God's still on the same mission. God's mission has not changed. He has not quit working to do the same thing with people today that he did in Nineveh. We start looking at the great cities of the world and we start thinking about the great wickedness of these cities of millions and millions of people. And we start thinking of how unreachable, how unsavable. So we all curl up in our easy chair and turn Netflix on and wish the world to go away. God has not changed his mission. He is going to save. And He is going to send. And your failures and your mistakes and your rebellions and your sins are not changing His mission. It's time to get vomited out of the fish that you're in, stand on the shore and listen to what God has for you to do. He's not done. His work's not over. It's surprising. God's mercies did not cease. Israel's purpose did not change. Therefore, Jonah's call was not removed. I want to take you to a a text that is, is good for you, good for me. Because we quoted a lot, but we missed its context of how God was using it in Jonah. It's in Lamentations. How many of you know that you've memorized a particular verse from Lamentations? Raise your hand up. Raise it up. Pretty high. So everybody can see. Some of you know. You have. Others of you don't know that you've memorized one, but you've sung it, and you've actually probably committed it to memory, and you just don't know that it came from Lamentations. It is, the Lord's mercies are new. When? 
You, you knew it. I told you. Great is thy... This Lamentations 3, 22. Because the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful to God first. And if God is faithful to God, it means God is faithful to God's mission. And God's mission is to redeem lost sinners. And to send His Son is the ultimate salvation of sinners. That's God's mission. He's carrying it out. And those mercies are new every morning. And they are new in the Middle East. They are new in Indonesia. They are new in Uganda. They are new in Venezuela. They're new in every great city of the world. They're new in New York City where they're choosing now this horrid up till the time of birth, abortion practice. There's so many places of wickedness on this world. And every morning in those cities, the Lord's mercies are new. Think that through. Jonah didn't want new mercies to come up in Nineveh. He wanted old sins to keep old sinners under judgment. But right now God's calling out to the governor and the, and the mayor in New York and He's saying, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Rise and shine and know that He is willing to forgive. And so, God's mercies have not ceased. So our, our purpose, this was, Jonah was under Israel's purpose, which was to sow messianic hope and to bring about the Messiah through their lineage. And so all of the Old Testament is sown with this day of the Lord, the end of the days, this glory of the revelation of Jesus and the consummation of His kingdom. And so the mission of Israel had not changed, so Jonah still had a job. The mission of the church hasn't changed. We still have this same... And so our calling has not been removed, even though we have been knuckleheads, idiots, and sinners. I don't know how bad you've blown it, but God's mission is still happening. and His mercies are still new. So, I could stay there all day. Here we go. The surprising nature of God's mercy. Think that through. The surprising nature of God's mercy. We want... Listen, we're hardening ourselves in a lot of ways by our entertainment. Because in our entertainment, whether it's the, the, the combat games we play or whether it's the kind of movies we watch, what we love is the slaughter of the enemy. We've become very comfortable with that desire. And that's not what God desires. God doesn't desire the slaughter of the enemy. God could do it. God could blink. And everything just... God chose instead this surprising mercy. Come with me. I wanted you to visit one other text with me this morning. I want you to visit with me the book of Ezekiel. And I want you to listen to God's mercy. 
We could go all New Testament, but, but I want to go Old Testament today because I want you to know that this stuff with Jesus and His mercy, it's not new. He's the fulfillment of the very mercy revealed in the Old Testament. And so in Ezekiel, you've got this statement from God that's very powerful. Go to chapter 18. Now, when I say I think we're desensitizing ourselves, I'm serious. We were were really bummed out at the end of the last Avengers movie. Why? Because the bad bad guy didn't get eliminated. We were really bummed out. Spoiler, sorry. It's been out a while. You should have seen it. Think this through. We have accustomed ourselves to bloodlust. We're good with it. I remember when the Gulf War broke out, I was working at the seminary. And I was working with a group of men from the city. And we were remodeling the the big chapel um, on the campus of New Orleans Seminary. Level Chapel. It's It's a whopper. And we were literally, from one end to the other, remodeling the entire thing. We were sanding every piece of wood... Uh, stripping all the old stuff out. We even disassembled the old pipe organ and redid all that. It was just a huge job. And it was when the Gulf War broke out and we played on the radio every day and we worked there for months. We played on the radio every day when the Gulf War broke out. Every sortie that was being flown and how many sorties had gone that day and how many dead were out there and how many Iraqis had been killed. And every time it happened, we were all going, yeah, we were all killing the enemy until one of the sons of the men came back and he described to us the day he walked the road when all of that um, particular supposedly elite guard had come out in this one formation trying to attack and we'd just gone in with those um, those jets and, and planes and we just laid waste and he had to go in and clean all the burned out bodies out and he began talking about human beings. And listen... I'm not for the enemy. So don't go away from here saying, yeah, Bart would have wished they would have won. Don't, don't draw me like that. But I want to tell you that every one of those dead men and women were made in the image of your God. And there has to be some kind of sorrow. And if we get comfortable rejoicing in the death of the wicked, we are not becoming like God. Listen to His words. Verse 23 of Ezekiel 18. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? So stop right there. I want to tell you, I was taking pleasure in the death of the wicked. I was rejoicing, I was jumping up and down. Now, I want to win, and I don't want us to lose a war, so please... Anytime I preach like this, I have people think, well, you know, he's just a liberal. (laughs) If you think that of me, you know who I am. (laughs) But listen to this. War is an ungodly, terrible necessity. And I don't ever want to lose a war if the cause is just. I hope you're with me on that. But I don't ever 
want to rejoice in the death of the wicked. Because every one of those souls are checking into hell. You with me? They're checking into hell. They're checking into hell. Instantaneously, they are checking into hell. I want to always hurt when people made in the image of God are checking in to hell. I want to hurt. I don't want that to go away. Would I fight to protect our country justly? Absolutely. I'll line up. I'll volunteer. I'm not an anti-war guy. But listen, when we take it too far and we become no longer sorrowed by the death of the wicked, but then begin to rejoice. It's dangerous. Jonah wanted to rejoice in the death of the Ninevites. He wanted to. That's why he didn't want to go and tell them of God's mercy. He didn't want to go and tell them of God's judgment. He wanted to be able to gloat over their destruction and rejoice that the enemies of Israel, which is what they were, were destroyed. Listen to the Lord. Verse 23. He's talking. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Okay? Ezekiel has to insert that in there to say, make sure you know who's talking right now. This is God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when He turns from His ways and lives. Don't you remember Jesus talking about the angels rejoicing when one sinner repents? Don't you remember that? It gives us a different picture. When we have to do something like war, a a, a horrid necessity, and it is a necessity, and even God commands it at times, and governments have to act for the sake of their people. The, The thing that we have to get clear on that is that there is a difference in being glad that you're delivered and having such a hatred that you have bloodlust and rejoice at the death of the wicked. And so God here wants to lay it out and He wants us to soak it up so that we can understand why is that so? Listen carefully. Because every human being was made in His image. That's why He doesn't delight in their death. That's why He doesn't rejoice. He gets it a little clearer a little later. Verse 32, for I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord. So repent and live. So the surprising nature of God's mercy is where is His delight? His delight is in saving wicked sinners. His delight is in rescuing the perishing. That's His delight. That's when the angels rejoice and clap and praise and whatever it is that they do when they rejoice. That's it. 
And so Jonah's mindset is not God's mindset. Jonah wanted to delight in the death of the wicked. He wanted to have a, oh yeah, bring the fire baby. Don't you remember the disciples asking Jesus the same thing? Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven? Jesus is like, that's not what we're here for. So what's happening is that the nature of God's mercy is being revealed. Yes, there are wars and there are the horrors of wars and there are the necessities of wars and there is the reality of having to kill to save life. Those are revealed in the Scripture. It is very clear. But where we get twisted is when it becomes a joy and a delight to see human beings cease to exist on earth and begin to exist in hell and have joy over it. The surprising repentance of Nineveh. (laughs) This was the equivalent of New York City of its day. Could you imagine one guy walking into New York City and starting on one end of the city and going to the other end of the city preaching one sentence and everybody in New York, everybody in New York says, I believe. And the governor proclaiming a decree that everybody in New York fast and turn to God and put on sackcloth and don't even feed your cat or your dog or your canary because they're going to fast with us and we're all going to turn to God. Peter would have a field day with that. That's how big of a deal it was for Nineveh to turn. It's surprising. Look at what happens... Verse three, the word, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's commands. You see, here he goes. That call is still there. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city. A three day walk. So it's big. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. We're going to get to that in a second. But look in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. This is almost an identical quote from when Abraham believed God. Did you know that? When it says, and Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness, it's almost an identical sentence in Hebrew. Wow! A one-sentence message and an entire city begins believing. The surprising repentance of the city of Nineveh. Wow! The whole town, they, the people of, the Nineveh, of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. In other words, the rich guy and the poor guy. All in between. They all believed God. The surprising magnitude of Nineveh's repentance. The word reaches the king in verse 6. He gets up from his throne, takes off his royal robe, puts on sackcloth, 
sits down in ashes, and he issues a decree to everybody in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered in sackcloth. Can you imagine covering 